Hello. We set up this podcast nearly nine months ago to shed a light on public service broadcasting, past, present and future. We've had some excellent guests over these last months who've done just that. They've been open and candid, offering all different shades of opinion, including, in the case of Charles Moore, considerable scepticism. We are especially pleased this week to be talking to Tony Hall, Lord Hall of Birkenhead, who was the Director General of the BBC from 2013 to 2020. He joined the corporation as a trainee in 1973, rising to Director of BBC News and Current Affairs in 1990, and continued to lead BBC News until 2001. During his tenure, he launched BBC Parliament, BBC Five Live, BBC News 24 and BBC News Online, before taking some time off to run the Royal Opera House in Covent Garden, with considerable success, and is much preoccupied with the future of public service media. Tony Hall, welcome to the podcast. I want to reflect on the different challenges that the BBC is facing, but let's start with what's missing, perhaps, or what we think is missing at the moment, a proper debate about public service media. Do you think we need that debate now? Without a shadow of doubt, we need a big debate about what we want out of public service media. And I agree with you, it's not just the BBC, it's also ITV, Channel 4 and other parts of the broadcasting establishment. Why does this matter? Well, one, because broadcasting is not just about a business. It also sets our culture. It's about who we are. It's about talent finding voice. It's about representing our communities to one another. It's also representing us... Um, to the world and also what we know about um, broadcasting uh, and public service broadcasting it's the keystone it's the absolute keystone uh, of the creative industry so we can unpack all of those things but why now because there's enough time now to talk about what we want what's happened in the past under myself but also under previous director generals going back some time when we've come to talk about the BBC and what we want out of the BBC, it's all been in a bit of a rush and the wrong way round. So we've talked about the funding settlements and then we've gone on to talk about now what do we want the BBC to do. And you can see exactly the same thing happening now, which is people talking about, you know, can the licence fee survive and what should replace the licence fee and all of that, as opposed to starting off the right way round, which is to say, what do we want out of public service broadcasting and the BBC in particular? What roles do we want it to play going forward? And then how do we fund it? And fundamentally, to get this debate out to people broadly around the country, the consumers, the, the people who pay the licence fee, not just making it a hothouse political debate. Now, I think starting in 2023, 2024, you know, say in the autumn, you've got time to do that before the BBC Charter comes up in 2027 and other things to do with the licensing of other public service broadcasters as well. But the debate is long overdue and I think um, it's got to be had. The problem is, while we wait for that debate, uh, the BBC is starting to cut things, uh, um, uh, inevitably, given the settlement it's had. And one of my concerns is that when it takes decisions in certain areas, let's say music and, and what it was proposing, the cuts it was proposing to do, it's not, in a way, it's not for the BBC to do that initially. Surely before those cuts are put into place, we need to look at what we want from the future of classical music in particular, from the public service media, the extent to which the BBC, with, with reducing what it does, will affect that larger picture and what we wish to do. But in the absence of that wider debate, the BBC has to get on with its cuts. And we're cutting into things like, I know, music and into local journalism, which you care passionately about. 
Well, let's let's take the, the music now. I, I I think why I think a big debate about the role of public service broadcasting must take place is because what we saw with the BBC's proposals for reducing the orchestras by twenty percent uh, and axing the singers came on top of the Arts Council's settlement on classical music, where they closed Britain's Symphonia, they stopped touring by Welsh National Opera. I care a lot about opera because of where I've been. Uh, they stopped Glyndebourne touring. And then on top of that, the BBC comes out and says, oh, by the way, we're also making some cuts as well. So for the sake of the nation, as it were, never mind classical music, you've got to st- stand back and say, what is the infrastructure of classical music we want in this country? And how do we support it? And I think the BBC's role in that is absolutely critical. There's one further thing which, which um, I noticed in this debate too. There is a sort of defeatism, not among people who care for classical music, um, and I declare in interest, I'm, I'm vice chair of the, of the LPO, but, um, but out there somehow, among the people who make decisions and others, that somehow this is a diminishing art form, that somehow, you know, it's very hard to get audiences for classical music. Well, this is exactly why the Arts Council's there. It's exactly why the BBC's there. It's there to passionately argue and give us access to this amazing rep of music, both old and also contemporary. Does that mean that the BBC, um, and I know you will not want as a former Director General to make your present Director General's life any more difficult, but is there a real sense in which the BBC has to say, we are having to make cuts, but before we do in these particular areas, and I would have extended it to science and I would have extended it to religion as well, there needs to be a wider public debate. We have to make, we have to live within our budget. But we're aware in these areas we are fundamentally going to affect the provision of a whole range of public service um, interests. And therefore, there needs to be that wider debate. I I, go along with that. I mean, you know, Tim has got a really, really hard job and I will be nothing but supportive of the BBC. There's nothing, you know, we all need to come behind the BBC and, and support Tim. But I think two things I would say about that. One is we do need to be clear about the damage done by the government's decisions about a flat licence fee for two years. They decided that. That actually puts the BBC in a very, very tough position. And I think we also need to understand that there's no easy way out from this. I mean, um, you know, people say, well, the BBC can always be more efficient. Yeah, well, the National Audit Office last autumn said that the BBC's efficiency rate had been really, really high. The overhead rate was something like, you know, 5%, which, you know, compared with other organisations, is pretty good. And on top of that, if I recall rightly, you could only expect going forward one third of productivity savings to come from productivity and the other savings would have to come from programme cuts. So, you know, there's no great easy out there by saying, oh, they can become more efficient. You know, they have too many overheads. They're sending too many people to Glastonbury and all that sort of stuff. Well, you know, cheap headlines, but it's not what Tim's facing. And on top of that, see, people say, well, you can just be more commercial. And, you know, I set up BBC Studios to be exactly that, to sell programmes all around the place. But you, again, you know that the margin you make on selling programmes, let's say you're doing really well and it's 10, 15%, that can't fill the, the, the hole, even if you expand hugely, and they are expanding well, that can't fill a hole. So in the end, you come back to, it's too late now for this round, but let's make sure we get it right from 27 onwards. And my own view, having looked at all the options with the select committee I'm on, my own personal view is you're going to come down to something like a licence fee or a household tax. And then the question is, can you make that more proportionate to people's ability to spend? But, you know, let's, I'm kind of with you on this. Let's start off by saying, what do we want this organisation to do? 
before we start deciding on what the funding, the right funding amount is. And before we go a little further into the BBC, would you extend out to Channel 4? Because, you know, when Channel 4 was set up, what, 1982-3, and I was rereading the other day what Jeremy Isaacs was proposing and largely achieved, and it was an astonishing moment. Um, but it's 40 years ago, and there are some people in the industry who think, and they, to a degree, look at the salaries that Channel 4 executives are paying themselves and wonder what is the point, what is the public service element in Channel 4 now? So do, would you include, when you talk about the need for a review of public service media, it's, it's also important that Channel 4 is involved in that and that those running it are open to a debate about its future and its role in public service? Well, I, I think... You know, I think to counter a weight of opinion, which I think actually in the public is probably shifting, we've got to get out there and argue for public service media as a whole, BBC and Channel 4. I have a a kind of really cheeky idea about Channel 4. I mean, I loved being on the Channel 4 board. I was on it for eight, nine years, and I, I, I really rate Channel 4 enormously. And I think it's a really important part of the ecology. I wonder whether, you know, going forward... We need to rediscover what Jeremy Isaac set up so brilliantly, you know, however many decades ago, and say to it, look, you need to commission, I mean, under the media bill, they can commission their own stuff, of course, but, uh, but look to commissioning, not from in- indies that are owned by enormous companies, but actually fashion a new cadre of independent television companies. And that's what we're going to charge you to do. Um, because I think they can do that very well. And I think that would enable them to, to be part of growing the creative industries going forward. And, you know, the government... But, you see, looking at Channel 4, looking at Channel 4 some of them, you could say it needs also to redefine minorities because some of the ideas, which were ideas and groups which are in the minority 40 years ago, are not so now, and different minorities come up. In fact, old majorities become minorities. I have a hobby horse about religion, for example, and its coverage and the necessity for understanding what is the most important thing for so many people from different backgrounds. Uh, Channel 4 got rid of a commissioning editor of that about 10 years ago, uh, and there is no requirement laid upon Channel 4 to explore this area, which, you know, in the world, what, 85% of people consider themselves to be religious. So I'm, I just think there needs to be that, again, wider debate with Channel 4 about it, what its purpose should be in the future and where it fits in to that public service need. I, I think what you say about genres, I think, is, is right. I mean, there's some genres that... We should, and I, I happen to agree with you on religion. And I remember you and I at one of those VLV conferences talking about this. I mean, I do think understanding faith and understanding religion is uh, fundamentally important, and finding ways of of doing that across the BBC, Channel Four, other public service media is important. So, so I worry about about a diminishing commitment to those sort of genres that actually matter a huge amount. Can we turn to to local and to regional journalism? I think you started off very early in your traineeship in the BBC in Northern Ireland, didn't you? At the at the worst time, I remember, well, it was just an appalling time, wasn't it? Then, and you've also you've carried a, you've carried throughout your career um, a belief in the importance of local journalism, and you therefore must be very disturbed about the crisis in local reporting, if you like. And then on uh, that now exists, and you did try to do something about that. But also, you must be concerned, are you, about, well, they say it's not cuts, but shall we say the reduction in certain forms of hours in BBC local radio? I love local radio. I uh, visited every single station bar one because I'm a huge believer in what local radio does to communities and how it makes communities, uh, it, it, it strengthens identities. And actually, one of the things I did in in my time was to abolish what was an all-England evening programme and say to local stations, you now go and use that time to find new talent. And they did. And they found some extraordinary programmes that both represented 
their localities and also found people who had not had a voice to that point. I think local radio, from the point of view of news and community, is really important. Where it works well, like uh, in, in my time in Radio Cumbria, it helped define Cumbria. I've seen it work brilliantly uh, on Humberside with Hull helping City of Culture there. Or when big stories happen, floods or whatever, you know, the, the, the local radio people are the first in, they're the last out, and they're almost part of the... Um, infrastructure is the wrong word, but, you know, they're recognised as being different to the people who come in nationally. So I think local radio is phenomenally important. I think because of what Ofcom has done, we've seen a diminution of commercial local radio. So the BBC... Yeah, it's which withdrawn effect- effectively the requirements of local radio to do almost anything local. <laughs> I, I know, which is, I mean, when I started off, you know, you, you were, you're in competition with commercial local radio stations. So, so I think the BBC are right to say we've got to take this forward digitally. Myself, I think I would not be trying to trim back what makes local radio so special, i.e. the amount of programming done at a local level. I mean, the other thing is we know, and you just you hinted at it in your question, I mean, I set up the local radio or local democracy reporters scheme, which so far has covered over a quarter of a million stories. This was because the press were not at council meetings or court cases or other... It, these things were just going unreported because of the collapse of a, a lot of the local press. So under the last charter, I said, right, um, you know, we'll go in there and we'll train people and we'll use people. Quarter million stories and places being covered that have not been covered before. Now, that matters for our democracy. So again, you know, before the BBC has to take decisions which it doesn't really want to take because of funding, we should be having a debate about how do we want to cover our local communities and the BBC's anchor role in that. And when there's a clear case of market failure, as you say. Another area, of course, where we were deeply involved um, throughout your career, and specifically here, setting up the BBC's 24-hour news channel. The BBC is now has amalgamated uh, its uh, world news and its domestic effective news channel, although it keeps the possibility of opt-outs on certain occasions. And some people are wondering, well, hold on a second, if Sky can deliver such a domestic, unique domestic service. It's going to be Sky that's going to be in every MP and other person's office turned on, not the BBC. Now, again, the BBC didn't want to be in the position. It had to make cuts. One needs to be very sympathetic to it. But it says something, isn't it, if our national broadcaster can't provide a 24-hour domestic news channel? Well, it's early days, but I wonder whether it will last I think, you know, at the core of the BBC is news. And, you know, reading the Reuters report on uh, news the other week, you just see how important it is. And it's good, all the things they're doing to demonstrate to us that this is news that is factually based. I think the BBC should be investing more in its news operation, to be honest with you, even though in my time we were looking for more productivity and so on. I think, again, this is a core resource for all of us in the UK and a core resource for the world because um, when I was Director General I managed to win the biggest increase in monies for the World Service from George Osborne, the then Chancellor, uh, since the Second World War and you just saw the reach of the BBC go up to just under uh, half a billion a week because of this extra resource so we should be building on the World Service and I think there needs to be more resource going into BBC News I would say. It's probably now, uh, my guess, uh, uh, you know, I'm two years out of the place it's probably about as efficient as you can get. And just listening to the day programme this morning, you know, you need that sense of first-hand reporting. I was, Tina Brown had a conference recently where Woodward and Bernstein were talking, 
And, you know, they had to remind everybody why we need reminding that the basis of great journalism is being there, knocking on doors, asking the questions, gathering the data. And that sort of first hand power is what the BBC stands for and uh, should carry on standing for. And because reporting, original reporting, is the, as you say, now what we've got now is a proliferation of opinion channels. I mean, look at GB News, for example. Uh, I I talked to uh, Stuart Purvis uh, a little earlier in one of our podcasts, and he was um, questioning, shall we say, what Ofcom Ofcom was doing or whether it was sufficiently supervising what was going on GB News. And he said, my concerns about their decision on GB News is they look like a policy decision that we, the British government Ofcom, are going to change the approach on British television to impartiality, um, effectively, he meant, without any discussion. So we have Tory MPs, and of course it could have been Labour MPs, Tory MPs interviewing a Tory Chancellor, and this being acceptable on for broadcast under what some people would consider a news programme, but then of course there's a debate about whether it actually is a news programme. What do you think of that development? I'm worried about it. I mean, I, I, I think, you know, GB News is, a, is uh, you know, there's, there's news on the hour, and when I've seen it, there's been, uh, after that, a lot of opinion, a lot of debate, an awful lot of feedback from, from audiences. And I, I think if Ofcom are applying different standards of impartiality to different outlets, then that should be debated and discussed before they do it. And I'm not aware, and I may be wrong, uh, I'm not aware that debate has taken place. So, you know, I mean, standards should be applied clearly, if not equally, to all, but clearly being the key thing. And I go back, I worry about impartiality becoming... An idea that's not properly understood or feels somehow old-fashioned and you kind of end up with what Ronald Reagan did by abolishing, I think it was called a fairness doctrine, wasn't it, in the States? And we do something similar here without realising it. You know, we kind of drift towards a point when you have very, very partisan channels. And I think what we've got with the ecology we've got in this country, we are very well served and we should lose it. Well, we shouldn't lose it. Uh, we should lose it, uh, you know, only without proper debate. But I would be a, in the opposition to any change at all. I mean, are you, 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 presumably in many ways you're past shocking, but were you as shocked as I was when you actually read the documents that Fox television executives and presenters had to reveal in a court case, which showed that they knew that... Um, uh, that Trump had lost the election, uh, they knew all about Trump's lies, and yet they were saying, we cannot say this on air because we will lose our revenue, our audience. So internally, they're saying one thing, externally in public, another. They are making money out of lies, which they know to be lies, because the audience is basically in charge of their economic model or their financial model. Uh, I, I, I didn't realise it was as blatant as that. Were you shocked? I was. I thought the email and other exchanges there were extraordinary. I can quite see why it uh, didn't end up in court and it was a, there was a settlement outside. Of course, there's another case to come. But I think we should be work so hard, be so careful at not importing that quality of allowance of broadcasting in, uh, broadcast news into this country. I put that rather badly, but what I mean is, you know, th- th- that tells you how you could end up we must do everything to make sure that's not what happens in this country. Because there could be no debate if there aren't any agreed facts or agreed premises. It is fundamental to our democracy, to our lives, that we have access to as near the truth as we can get at any, at any moment. And that is going to change because new facts, new, new things will emerge and so on. But you've got to be able to trust. 
And I think this is where the BBC comes in. You've got to be able to trust, find some trusted source of information on which you can base judgments about your lives and what is going on in the world. And what I, what I always found about the BBC was that, you know, people would say, I go to the BBC first. But others would say, I will go to the BBC to check what's actually happening, to check what's right, almost as a fact checker. And that, I think, is a very important role of, of the BBC's journalism. Are you surrounded still in the House of Lords by people who say to you, look, Tony, you're slightly out of date here. Look at the market, look at Netflix, look at everything else. It's all there, it's provided. The market is now delivering in a way it didn't 30, 40 years ago. Do you really need the BBC? Now, I obviously think, like you, you do, but I do feel... Have we hit the high watermark, watermark do you think, of, of the argument which broadly says Netflix is the answer to everything? I think we probably have. And I think one of the stats I'm quite partial to when people say it's all going to be provided now by streamers, isn't it, is a point about our culture, which is, roughly speaking, Netflix and the streamers do 800 or 900 hours, roughly, of programmes about the UK, made in the UK, um, uh, sorry, programmes made in the UK. And the uh, public service broadcasters are up around 34,000 hours. So, you know, and, and that's not going to change. So, you know, if you want to have broadcasting as part of our culture, as a creative force in our culture, and I believe it is, it's, it's more than just a business. Uh, it, it's about expressing ourselves. Then actually, you've got to have an infrastructure that delivers that. And that's why public service broadcasting broadly is so important. So this is not an old-fashioned argument. It's an argument which is, has to be refined and refreshed according to what we now have. And we have incredible riches. You know, I'm, I'm the last to, to complain about Netflix or, or, or Apple or what I can get on Prime because actually I'm, 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 I'm getting some wonderful things. But that's not to say you don't need the core of what makes us who we are from the public service broadcasters. Now, you stress the importance of impartiality and, and the importance of trust. If people can't trust the BBC, can't trust the news, I mean, we are in trouble, I think. And obviously, this leads us to the question of the chairman of the BBC and the perceived impartiality. Now, you said, uh, you said that at a meeting I was um, of the viewers and uh, listeners organisation, you said you think the Prime Minister ought to give up the power to choose who should take on the role of the BBC chair and you said about rishi sunak he should say something interesting about bbc chair rules what would be interesting in your view well um i think it would be really interesting if, if the prime minister sunak or whoever the future prime minister might be rishi sunak was to say it really matters that the person who is a uh, chair of the bbc is seen to be impartial and independent and i'll leave it to a committee of people to decide who that person might be that we know who that committee is, we can see their political allegiances, uh, if there are any or not. That's a change from last time where, where it was not an impartial grouping of people. And by the way, I think the board of the BBC should have the, uh, a casting vote as well as a DCMS select committee. Because, you know, I've, I mean, you sat on boards, I've sat on boards. It's very odd to have a, a, a chair imposed on you. Now, I know that happens in uh, arm's length organisations from, from, from uh, uh, arm's length organisations of the public sector. But actually, the BBC's independence is so important. I think one of the real ways of ensuring that this person is going to defend the BBC's independence and its impartiality is by saying the board also have a say. And again, that could be uh, publicly said. So those are three things within the terms, I think, of the way things operate at, at the moment. You've also got to ask yourself, I think, whether, you know, um, whether that person ought to have a broadcasting or media background. Bankers tend to chair banks. 
because they kind of know about banking. And uh, I also wonder whether, you know, somebody with a media background would be a good chair for the BBC too. You know, it may be you can't find someone, but that's another condition. And if it's not the chair, then can you make sure that a large number of people within the board of the BBC... Uh, have a media background and understand the issues that we're we're dealing with. It's quite it's quite strange when you look at the board, by the way, um, at the moment, and you understand why it's very it's packed with business people in many ways because the BBC is obviously looking to a life beyond the licence fee. It's looking to expand its income. It's spending a lot of BBC America, as far as I can see. But then you say, who is there standing up for the arts? Well, there's Nicholas Sirota, but you say, well, the science uh, for a whole raft of things, and you begin to think, whoops! Now with a, a unified board. There has to be, there's nobody from the trade unions, for example. There has to be someone who can step outside of the, of the world of business and, and of politics and whatever, and in some way stand up for the people who are paying for this organisation. You see, and, and, you know, the key words here are public service. You know, this is an organisation which is there on behalf of the public to deliver great and good things that the public might not get in any other way and helps to educate, we haven't talked about that, uh, the public into things that are great for them. I mean, it's a kind of, it's a, you know, it it goes back to that wonderful period after the Second World War when all sorts of great thinkers, you know, thought about what should the public get as part of their right. And I think the BBC is part of that. I mean, it goes back earlier, of course, but it's part of that thinking. And It's also a view of ourselves of what we want to hand on. What do you think it's important? If somebody claims to be British or wants to be British or whatever, what we say, what does that mean? What do you need to inherit in terms of understanding about what the country was? And what do you need to know now to know what the country is? And, I mean, I look at things like the crisis in, I'm not a scientist, but I look at the worry, worrying about teaching of science in school, or the availability of music in school and elsewhere, and you think all of this is screaming out for a public service to do something about, broadcasters to do something about, and clearly the market is not delivering at the moment, and this is a role. But do you, do you think your argument, that not the answers that you give so much as the questions that you ask in Parliament and elsewhere, do you think they're now getting a sort of hearing that they might not have got three, four, five years ago? I think so, and I, and I hope so. I mean, I think the, the, these are... I think there's a shift happening where people are realising that the public sector matters an awful lot. And, you know, the things that we want, many can be delivered by commercial means, and that's great if they can be, fine. But that there's something about the public realm, there's something about our identity, there's something about what we expect all our people to have access to that answers the question, therefore, what is public service broadcasting? I am much impressed by when I was running the BBC, at the idea of the BBC also being a convener. Round the BBC, you can bring people together to have discussions about what you can do collectively that I think very few organisations can do other than government. So when you take Hull City of Culture, you know, the BBC's role there was not to determine what Hull did. It was to say, we can act as convener enabler. And I think that comes out in the, the um, cultural industry, creative industry's vision that the BBC, that the government, sorry, put out uh, last week. This sort of sense that public service can be an enabler, can make things happen. And, you know, in your and I's uh, time in, in broadcasting, you know, when I set off uh, as a news trainee, Cardiff, it was kind of, the, you know, the Welsh outpost of the BBC. Now go to Cardiff Bay and thanks to investment by the BBC and others coming in, that's an extraordinarily dynamic broadcasting structure, some of it based around the genius of Doctor Who and all the pushes in in tech that you needed to do the monsters on Doctor Who. This is the change that the BBC can bring about. Or if you take what's happening in, in Salford 
you know, again, this is extraordinary. So, you know, again, I think the sense that the public interventions can lead to a greater return that benefits everybody, including commercial operations. I think that argument is getting stronger. I certainly hope so. But the other thing is you said about the curriculum. I mean, I worry about this. I sat on a a select committee a year and a half ago looking at youth unemployment. And you realise that what employers are asking for are some of the qualities which comes from art, culture, music and other things, um, which are not completely across the board on the curriculum because you know, it depends on what school you're at. These things should be part of the, of the curriculum. Now, I think the BBC has a role in that. And actually what we showed during COVID was how the BBC can turn on a sixpence and suddenly deliver education to many, many people uh, in many, many different ways. Now, we talked finally, we must come to the end of this conversation, we've talked about the need for discussing what public service media is to begin with, then looking at the BBC and importance of partiality. You've mentioned the question of funding And just on that question, uh, when I look back, uh, you made a deal in 2015, uh, which uh, ushered in a number of uh, very difficult changes for the BBC. Um, Did you think you had any alternative in the circumstances in which you operated but to do that deal? Because I was quite shocked. You you know, it was still basically done in the Chancellor of the Exchequer's office. Uh, without any wider discussion. And, and you went back, and it's obviously to your credit, you went back for the World Service, got lots of more money out of him, but because you'd initiated the conversation. I mean, there wasn't a proper formal look at what was needed or debate, whatever. It was very much horse trading in number 10 or number 11. It was, it was number 10, but not with the, with the Prime Minister. I mean, we were jumped. Uh, and the same thing happened to Mark Thompson. We were jumped. And uh, I remember John Whittingdale saying to me, uh, you're going to get the over 75s. I've, I've fought it over the weekend. There's nothing I can do. So the only option we had was to either go in there and start saying, right, we want stuff back from you or walk away and say it's going to be imposed on us. So we went in there and negotiated and we won things back from the government for that. And I think... Do you regret that? Was it... I mean, Mark Thompson will have said, uh, has said that he was faced with a similar deal earlier and he did actually say it's a resigning matter. It was more difficult for you later on. Do you think you could have walked away? No. Um, I, I think, well, well, of course you couldn't walk away because, you know, I, but I think we would have then, uh, on a, um, a government where they were going to be much tougher on the s- scope and scale of the BBC because that was to follow... I think that would have been uh, wrong-headed. Though, of course, I thought about it very, very carefully. I mean, like, very, very carefully, because you think of all those sort of options. But the thing which happened to Mark and then happened to me, this notion that you do these things over a, a small amount of time, is that that's why we need a fundamental debate about what we want out of the BBC before we get into, into funding and all those sort of things. And uh, it happened to Mark. I mean, he took on the World Service, 250 million and other things as well. I got the over 75s. And then, then the debate follows about what you want the BBC to do. This is wrong-headed. And, and what I learned from that is the debate has got to be the other way around on behalf of the people who pay for the BBC and believe in the BBC. And finally, just tell me the story again, if you would, about how you got that extra money for the World Service, because I don't know whether to be impressed or shocked. Well, I'm impressed with you and shocked by the government. Tell me what happened. Well, I said as I left the room with the Chancellor having, you know, and it went on, you know, our discussions went on for a week, ended up on a Saturday morning. By the way, I want to come back with some, uh, some other asks for you. He said, yeah, yeah, sure, 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 sure. I mean, I think probably to get me out of the room quickly. And then I went back in September and said to George uh, Osborne, I want another 85 million a year to the World Service. This is what I can deliver. And uh, James Harding and I, in discussing this, 
He was the director of news at the time, yeah. thought, this is the top end, but, you know, there's no point in starting low because you, you get, you know, half of it. And he said yes, and he believed in the case. And actually, to give credit, when uh, the current Chancellor, uh, Jeremy Hunt, came in as Foreign Secretary under one of the governments, he, uh, he said to me, come in, I want you now to get to a billion people a week what do you need? And we put a programme out. And that programme, to get the BBC World audiences to a billion, that programme is still there. Uh, last time I saw Jeremy a couple of months ago, he said, I haven't forgotten about the billion. It's all there for the BBC to argue for. And again, I think with public support, you know, uh, that must be a good investment from the point of view of a post-Brexit, whatever sort of world we're in, that actually our soft power, not just the BBC, not just Channel 4, but actually theatre, arts and so on, these are really important things for us globally. But we should do it differently. We absolutely should do it, didn't we? Tony Hall, finally, um, you could... Well, you're a lord. You've done so many things. You are, if I dare say, younger than me, but still 70 or just uh, over the top of that. Um, are you going to stop this? Are you going to... Do you still have a passion for public service? Because what else do you need? Yeah, I do. I think... I mean, look, you're carrying on with your podcast. I refuse to accept that we're all old. Um, I think we've got stuff to say, haven't we? And stuff that we believe in, stuff we've learned. And I'm enjoying myself. Look, I, I find inactivity impossible. And there are so many things I'm, I'm enjoying. I've just joined the National Trust. That's kind of wonderful and exciting. I'm doing a little bit of work back um, with um, people in Birkenhead, which is getting me back there, which I'm enjoying and some music and some other things and some foundations as well as doing work in the Lord. So I'm keeping myself, I was going to say Adam Mischief, maybe not Adam Mischief, but, you know, I think we've all got stuff to offer and we should carry on doing it as long as we can. And I hope you do carry on making mischief. Uh, Tony Hall, Lord Hall of Birkenhead, thank you very much. Thank you. And that's it for this week. If you think our podcast is important, please do support us. Won't take you long. It's less than £2 a month, which also gives you access to a weekly newsletter, and you can find the link on our website and in the description of this program on your podcast platform, where you will also find details of how to contact us on Twitter, Mastodon, and by email. And if you didn't know already, this podcast is presented by me, Roger Bolton, and is produced by Kate Dixon. The sound is by Clifton Bank Studios, and special thanks to Quinn Genty. It is a good egg production. Thanks for listening, and until next time, goodbye. <laughs>